Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be taking a look at the 1986 film Hands of Steel, which is an Italian Terminator clone that asks the question, not just can a cyborg fall in love, but can a cyborg appreciate the finer points of arm wrestling? That's right. Uh, this one, also known as Vendetta del Futuro, I guess Vendetta of the Future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I've also seen it credited uh, with another title, um, uh, uh, the Italian for Hands of Stone. Maybe that was a working title. I'm not sure. Mani de Pietra? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why would it be Hands of Stone? This cyborg definitely does not have stone in him. He has metal in him. We see it yes. up close. Uh, now, there was a funny thing about this. You might ask, okay, is this movie a, an Italian ripoff of Terminator? And the answer is yes. But it's more than that. It's also, as we've said, it's about love and it's about arm wrestling. But mm. I would say uh, there, there's a strange quality this movie has, which is that it rips off movies that post-date it. So when I was watching, I was thinking, <laughs> it's not just a rip-off of Terminator. It's also, in a way, a rip-off of RoboCop. Though RoboCop didn't come out until at least a year after this movie was made. And it's also kind of a rip-off of Universal Soldier, which didn't come out until several years after this was made. So actually, it's uh, it's uh, what's the word for that? It's almost kind of a mystical concept of like uh, the idea that predates the thing from which it is derived. Yeah, uh, it, is, it is a holy artifact, this this movie. Uh, I, I, could, I was also thinking about this when it came out because I knew that it had this arm wrestling element. So I'm like, oh, this was probably also influenced by Over the Top, the Stallone arm wrestling movie. But mm-hmm. that didn't come out till a year after Hands of Steel. So you, you see a lot of that going on in this. Now, to your point, it does have elements from these other films. I've seen it referred to as a a hybrid film or even the ultimate hybrid film, um, <laughs> which on one hand, yes, you do see a lot of, um, uh, of, of borrowing of elements from other films at the time, especially in Italian cinema. Uh, but then I also feel like I have to cut a little slack to films like this because all movies are hybrid movies, you know? Sure. Uh, yeah. it, there are varying degrees of artfulness of, of, of doing it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the, a lot of films came out influenced by Terminator. Uh, not all of them uh, were great. <laughs> but uh, but this one is not bad. I mean, I, I enjoyed it uh, from, from start to finish. It has some weird choices in it. And uh, it's uh, shot almost exclusively in Arizona. Little known fact, the state motto of Arizona, the cyborg state. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, also, one of the things about this one is uh, the, the, a lot of the the, uh, the posters for it and box art would advertise uh, that uh, our hero in this is 30 percent human, 70 percent robot and 100 percent lethal. <laughs> He says that in the movie, remember, when it, there's like the reveal scene? It's a tender uh, sort of love scene. Remember when, when Linda is like, what are you? And he's like, I'm 30% human and 70% robot. He doesn't say the lethal part, but <laughs> but he's like got it down to the percentages. Yeah, I mean, he knows. 
Who knows? Is that by weight or by volume? <laughs> um, I guess by volume. That's the way I interpret it. I was thinking like which like different limbs and organs missing, right? Uh, though we never get a clear picture. I don't know. There's some flashes of schematics and whatnot, but I don't think they really contain that much information on this premise. I guess now that we've said the 30% human, 70% robot, that that's sort of already the elevator pitch from the movie, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. what else is there to say except, well, he, he's an assassin, right? When is this movie set? It's set uh, in the future of 1997, Uh, so a little little over a decade into the future now, our past. Uh, But yeah, it's about a cyborg assassin who rediscovers his humanity, uh, and meanwhile his murderous handlers pursue him across the Arizona wasteland in order to uh, keep him from falling into the wrong hands and, of course, getting away with his change of heart. You're not supposed to change your heart if you're part of Team Bad Guy. That's right. Let's hear that trailer audio. with mission as directed and don't let there be any mistakes neutralize neutralize no! just follow my orders we won't fail 70% of my body has been bionically reconstructed Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was instantly intrigued once I once I heard this. This is one I had not seen before. I just finished watching it this morning, and uh, I, I remember the, the the VHS box art, I think, or maybe the DVD art. It has a, this wonderful illustration of our lead character with what really seems to be an arm of steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, it uh, it's a it's a sci fi extravaganza. So if you watch the credits for this movie, they name the director as somebody named uh, Martin Dolman. Now, Martin Dolman is not a real person. That is the the pseudonym, uh, the, the nom de – what's the movie version of nom de guerre? Nom, nom de cinema of uh, Italian director Sergio Martino, who is uh, famous for having directed a lot of uh, classic, uh, famous slash infamous uh, Italian B-movies and giallo films. That's right. Uh, he's noted for having said that while some directors create sparkling wine, he creates soda pop. But at the end of the day, he'd rather have a good soda than a bad sparkling wine. Okay. Uh, which, I think that's a fair comparison. I mean, it's. I think it's up for the viewer to decide which this is, if this is a good soda pop or if it's a little bit flat. I don't know. It, 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 it got the fizzy uh, sensations going for me. Uh, but Martino, he's, he's directed all sorts of pictures. He has 66 credits on IMDb up through 2012, and they include spaghetti westerns, comedies, various genre pictures. Uh, and, of course, this one is a, a sci-fi action flick. Uh, I, I would actually say that this movie is a room-temperature can of Schweppes ginger ale, which yeah. is not necessarily a bad thing. I, I mean, it looks like it's made from all-natural ingredients, though. I, I don't know if there's <laughs> any high-fructose corn syrup in here. This, this feels like it's just got sugar cane. Okay. Uh, uh, one, one picture from uh, Sergio Martino uh, that is near and dear to my heart is Screamers from 1979, which uh, we might in the future come back and look at in, in greater uh, detail. I, I own this one on Blu-ray. Uh, 
it, I've talked about it a little bit on the show before. It was originally titled Island of the Fishmen, but then it was released by Roger Corman in the, in the U.S. with this new title and a new opening sequence featuring Cameron Mitchell. And I think the new opening sequence, sequence was actually directed by Jim Wynarski of Chopping Mall fame. Mm. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful film about fish people and treasure and explorers in which a human being does not turn inside out, despite that being the uh, like the promise uh, the, on the on the poster art and the VHS box art for Screamers when uh, when I was a kid. Oh, I think that was the context in which it orig- originally came up. It was like uh, we were talking about movies where the poster or the box and the title give you absolutely the wrong idea about what's in the film, like not right. even close. Yeah. So Screamers, as promoted by Corman and company, yeah, just seemed like it was going to be a body horror nightmare that I wanted no part of as a child and would be you know, reluctant to engage in even as an adult. But really, it's just a wonderful Fishman film. And Martino directed it. Martino also directed a number of Jallo movies. Uh, if you're not uh, very familiar with Jallo movies, this is a term that's sort of a loose designation for uh, – an Italian subgenre of like murder mystery type movies that are uh, that that in a way predate the emergence of the slasher genre in America, where there would be like a, a knife wielding killer and a number of characters who would get murdered one by one, while some characters try to figure out what the identity of the killer is, and usually the identity is revealed at the end, and it's some kind of bizarre twist, like oh my god, I couldn't believe it was that person. And so Martino has a number of movies like this. Uh, one of the ones that stands out in my memory is a is a, a weird one called All the Colors of the Dark from 1972. Mm, I love the title. I've not seen it. It's been a while, but I, if I recall, it's the story of a woman who I think she's supposed to be Italian, but living in Great Britain. And uh, she ends up uh, believing she is pursued by the members of a satanic cult. But I think there's a twist ending. Okay. Um, now, in terms of the, the writing on Arms of Steel, Martino has story credit, but he shares screen, screenplay credit here with five other people. Uh, I'm not going to list them all, but they were uh, individually involved in such films as Zombie, uh, 1990, The Bronx Warriors, Missing in Action, Argo Man, The Fantastic Superman, and Devilfish. I think, I, I think I've seen all of those. Uh, one of the writers is named Elizabeth Parker Jr., which, mu- much like Martin Dolman, is actually an anglicized pseudonym, this time for uh, Elisa Briganti, who wrote a bunch of well-known Italian B-movies. Uh, I think she wrote uh, Fulci's movie Zombie and a number of gross-out movies of, of that ilk. <laughs> All right. As far as the cast goes here, we're going to we're, we're going to get to our hero, to our cyborg. But I want to start with the, uh, the 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 uber villain of this picture, uh, the, the character Francis Turner, because he was played by John Saxon, who lived 1936 through 2020. I think when you told me this, I was like, oh, John Saxon, then it can't be bad. <laughs> yeah, he is a I, he's a legendary American actor, uh, mostly a appeared in, in B-movies, or a lot of B-movies and genre pictures. Um, in, in this, he's the mastermind uh, who hired the cyborg assassin and then has issues with his job performance. He's, the, <laughs> he's very much a corporate suit villain for the most part in this. You, you could call this movie a, a deadly game of cat and mouse that ultimately boils down to a performance review. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, So John Saxon is weird because he's one of those actors who... 
mostly did bad movies, but I do just always kind of perk up when he shows up in a film. I mean, he is in some great movies too. He's in Enter the Dragon. Oh yeah, um, yeah. He's uh, uh, which is you know of course is fantastic. That's a classic. Uh, he's in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, so he he's in some A list films as well. But if you scroll through his like all all the B movies he did, you will come across a, a, a number of, huh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, like just, just to name a few, uh, in addition to the ones you, you just mentioned, uh, he was in uh, 1974's Black Christmas, he was in Battle Beyond the Stars, Prisoners of the Lost Universe, Beverly Hills Cop 3, uh, <laughs> Wes Craven's New Nightmare, I, I actually like that one, uh, yeah. From Dust Till Dawn, Dario Argento's uh, Tenebrae, um, Antonio, the... Um, the Antonio Margaretti horror film Cannibal Apocalypse. Uh, that's one that he's, I think he's the star of that one. I haven't actually gotten around to seeing that one, but it's infamous. Uh, he was in two episodes of Night Gallery. Uh, and he was also in another Martino film, The Scorpion with Two Tails from 1982. But but huh. I agree with you. Even no matter what the movie is, when Saxon shows up, uh, I get kind of excited about his presence. Like he, he's a dependable actor. He's, he was never a bad actor. Uh, but it's like, um, he's kind of like, movie royalty it's like that dick miller factor when he shows up i i wouldn't put saxon for me quite on the same level as dick miller because at least dick miller is always funny you can yes feel true. that dick miller i think brings comedy to roles that even that wouldn't be funny on the page if you just like read the character's lines it's not a comedic performance it can just be like a you know a, a straightforward minor bit part where he plays a shop owner or something but somehow in his delivery dick miller always makes the character funny yeah, whereas Saxon, it's more just knowing that it's Saxon and knowing that he was in all these films and that he, you know, he fought alongside Bruce Lee. You know, he, he's just a just a legend of of this caliber of picture. All right, let's get to our hero then. Okay, um, this is Paco. Uh, how do you say his last name? Paco Quirac. Quirac. Yeah, uh, this is this character was played by Daniel Green, uh, who was born in 1960 and is still out there working. Uh, so he is our oily, muscled up cyborg. Um, Green was on Falcon Crest back in the day. He had small roles in various mainstream comedies such as Kingpin. Uh, he did a lot of TV work. He's been every everything from a police officer on Three's Company to a hunk on Night Court, and he even popped up in Eastbound and Down. So this is a guy that did a lot of work, and he must have been uh, Martino must have liked working with him at least because he was in five films for Martino overall this one beyond Kilimanjaro after the condor the opponent and American rickshaw the opponent by the way boxing movie Daniel Green so I got a sense I wonder what you think about this that often on the set they'd be setting up for a scene and Daniel Green would start to make the argument I think my character would be shirtless in this scene <laughs> and they're kind of going, they're like I don't know that's not in the script and he's like no hear me out right it's hot you know the, and he's been working or doing this thing and so like the shirt would be off and they're like okay Daniel yeah well, it's hard to argue with that chest, I guess. But in these scenes where he's shirtless, he seems more shirtless than a normal shirtless human somehow. Maybe, yes. again, just because of his muscles. He's like 1.6% shirtless to the yeah. to the regular one. So uh, we'll be talking about him a lot because he's uh, he is a lot of fun in this. Uh, but then, of course, we have our female lead, and that is Linda. Uh, I don't know that Linda has a last name. Uh, uh, which... I don't, yeah, I don't recall if they say it. But, uh, but that, she, that goes along with the writing for the character, really. Um, uh, she's played by Janet Agron, 
Yeah, Swedish model turned actor who appeared in 1985's uh, Red Sonja, as well as the Lucio Fulci 1980 horror film City of the Living Dead, among many others. Yeah, it seems like she mostly starred in various kinds of Italian exploitation movies and horror films and a couple of, I noticed uh, in the list, uh, some Z-tier shark movies. Have we done a shark movie on Weird House Cinema yet? I mean, I feel like I've spent, I've wasted so many hours of my life watching terrible shark movies. I can't believe we haven't even gotten into the shark realm of cinema yet. Oh, we should. We sh- we'll, have, we'll have to save that one for Shark Week, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's an idea. Uh, but so the, here's the thing I discovered earlier today. I was trying to find out more about Janet Agron, and I discovered she actually had a limited musical career, and I could only find one recording of one song by her. It was a 1984 single. So this movie came out in 86. This musical number predates the film that we're talking about today. It's a 1984 single called Teddy Bear, which is a deeply bizarre Italian disco song where the the instrumental track on it actually somewhat recalls Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads, uh, <laughs> but kind of but kind of popped up so like make make Psycho Killer sound a little bit uh, more manically happy. And then the song appears to be literally about a teddy bear. The chorus is gimme gimme teddy teddy my teddy bear. I don't know if something is lost in the translation of this, but this song is just like a a, a doorway to untold realms of suffering. It's the box from the Hellraiser movies. You should look it up and listen to it to summon the chains out of the walls. I'll share a link to this on the blog uh, for this episode, but let's go ahead and ask Seth to play the legal limit on Teddy Bear. Okay. See? See? You want more, don't you? Do you? Okay. <laughs> Keep listening. You'll get to where you'll, you'll, you'll be up for that second listen. I think I ended up listening to it twice. Pleasure and pain, indivisible. All right. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the character Peter Howell in this, played by uh, Claudio oh. Casanelli. And this one, this one this gets a bit tragic, but it's necessary to discuss uh, because he's one of our main subvillains. He lived 1938 through 1985. Uh, he played Zeus in the Lou Ferrigno Hercules movie, The Adventure of, of Hercules, which I remember seeing as a kid. And that's another uh, very muscly movie. Uh, but uh, uh, Casanelli sadly died during the production of this film in a helicopter crash uh, in Arizona. I think uh, uh, for this reason, his character is largely absent from the final showdown. And there's another character played by uh, Roberto uh, Bisacco uh, that fills his basically fills in his role or his character fills in the villain role in the early parts of the film. So uh, the, the, the ultimate ultimately the finished product you know, it shows the sign of them having to write and film around the fact that one of their um, one of their lead actors died during the uh, the, the the filming of the, the motion picture. Oh wow, that is sad, and that that now explains things about the plot that did not make sense to me before. That there yeah. is a strange sort of like trade out of characters at multiple points. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, he's good in it, uh, as 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 is uh, Roberto uh, um, uh, Bisacco, who basically plays a similar character. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it was kind of weird to watch it, knowing that that was going to occur, especially when we get to the scenes with the helicopters, with the bridge, uh, because what apparently happened was the chopper clipped the bridge, and then the, the chopper plummeted uh, 400 feet into the Colorado River. Oh, wow. 
Um, but a constant in this, though, uh, no matter which villain character is present, there's this guy with round sunglasses. Yes. Um, and I, I'm not sure who play, who this character is or who plays him. I, I spent a lot of time looking at the IMDb list for this movie, and it seemed impossibly short for the number of humans that are actually in the film. It's possibly this guy, Andrea Coppola, uh, but I'm not sure. I don't even recall if we learned this character's name. He's just the be- the henchman with sunglasses who's there in every scene with the bad guys. Yeah, so he has a lot of screen time for an actor that I couldn't quite pinpoint. Now, a, now a sub-villain uh, of note in this film is the character uh, uh, Raul Morales, uh, who's a... What would you call him? A trucker? A, yeah, a mean he, trucker? He is a bad trucker. The, this yeah. movie has a number of bad truckers in it and some good truckers. I mean, it, it runs the gamut of, of trucker morality. Uh, you, you get a real stand-up trucker who shows up in the ending sequence. Uh, but some of the truckers we meet early on are aggressive, loudish, no-good dudes. And George Eastman plays Raul, they're the leader of the bad truckers. Yes, George Eastman. Speaking of of like a treasured uh, trading card of 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 somebody you spot, or at least I spot in a film, and and instantly am am hooked. Uh, this is this is Big George Eastman. This is a uh, this is a guy that pops up in a number of B B to Z uh, films uh, from Italy uh, from this time period. Have you seen George Eastman in a film before, or was this your first time, Joe? Oh, I know I have, but I don't remember which one. Uh, well, you know what? I bet I've probably seen him in at least uh, parts of movies that I've never watched the whole thing of. Like, I know yeah. I've watched part of Anthropophagus, but did not complete it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, we'll get to that one in a second. Uh, I completed it. Uh, it was it was a journey. But um, so he's Eastman is always memorable because he's one of those character actors that has just such a distinctive look. Uh, he has this physicality uh, and just a knack for playing crazy. It's like any kind of crazy. He doesn't always play crazy over the top characters, but when he does, he's memorable. Um, and uh, yeah, he's an interesting character. He was born Luigi uh, Montefiore. He's sometimes credited under that name, sometimes credited as various other names. But the name George Eastman shall be the one written forever in B-movie lore. And it's easy to see why he got a lot of work, uh, first in spaghetti westerns and then in various genre pictures. Because in his prime, this man was a little over 6'6", and I've seen him, I've seen him promoted as being 6'9", which may, makes me think 6'6 is probably accurate. Because mm-hmm. uh, you tend to, to bill your big men as being even bigger than they are. He is a big dude. I think he's... Even like the the lead guy in this movie, uh, Daniel Green, is very he's a very large guy, but Eastman is taller than him, I think. Yeah, yeah. He seems to tower over everybody in the film. Um, He was lean but muscular, and he often uh, spouted this impressive beard. So he's one of these guys you see just other you see some pictures of him. You go like, okay, he's handsome. Sure. But then you see eyes. You see these uh, images where he's like really making crazy eyes or he's grinning with these enormous. He's got this enormous, like perfect grin, but it's just a little too wide. Like it's the grin of Satan. Uh, (laughs) So uh, he's always a lot of fun. Sometimes he plays non-villains, but he tends to excel at playing dirtbags, warlords, monsters. And he's played some notable examples of all of those. For example, he was in Enzo G. Castorelli's 1983 post-apocalyptic film Warriors of the Wasteland, playing the post-apocalyptic leader one. He was, uh, again, in the Joe D'Amato low-budget monster-slash-slasher film Anthropophagus from 1980 and Absurd from 81. 
Uh, so in these movies, he plays essentially the same character, an insane killer with a mutant healing factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very low budget, only loosely connected. Uh, in the first one, he's this grotesque cannibal monster named Klaus Wartman, who's kind of a, oh, what was the character in Dante's Inferno who goes mad because he had to eat his uh, family? Oh, well, I can't remember which one it is, but it's Ugolino and Ruggieri. They're together in the, the very lowest uh, layer of hell. Those who, like, betrayed Ken, I think, or something, or betrayed yeah, I... betrayed people. It was like the worst kind of betrayal, as imagined by Dante. And they're, like, frozen in ice together right at the bottom of hell before you get to Satan himself. And it's Count Ugolino and Archbishop Ruggieri, I think. And one of them is just gnawing on the other one's head like it's a ham. Yeah, so it's that energy without any of that, um, uh, without any of that depth. Uh, but it's like I think he's supposed to have been a guy in his family who were shipwrecked on this Greek island, and then he had to eat them, and it drove drove him mad. And so now he's just a cannibal wild man who kills and eats. Uh, anybody who shows up to vacation there, uh, he dies at the end. And the memorable scene is that he's disemboweled and then he pulls out some of his own intestines and starts chewing on them. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's a notoriously uh, grisly scene and in uh, otherwise a kind of, I guess, slow film. But it's one of those where kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the the film quality is such that everything feels slightly more real because it feels like you're watching um, a like documentary footage or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Eastman, I would say, generally exists at the nexus of a lot of really gross movies. Yeah. Uh, they did a sequel, t- again, titled Absurd. And apparently the story on this was like, they're, they're like, okay, we made money off of this first one. Uh, you know, it was actually a hit. So we're going to do a sequel. And Eastman was like, I don't know. And they're like, and then, and then Jody Amato's like, here's the script. And Eastman's like, yeesh. Uh, so Eastman rewrites it. <laughs> and it's essentially a Halloween clone, uh, but uh, it has some memorable scenes in it. And his character in that is named Mikos. And it's a little more pronounced that he has some sort of mutant healing factor. But in that, that one, he doesn't have any makeup. It's just straight Eastman uh, crazy face, which I think is one of the appeals of character actors like Eastman. Because in a film that can't really afford any kind of special makeup or special makeup effects, uh, Eastman's face is the, the special effect, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, he was also in 1990, The Bronx Warriors, 2019, After the Fall of New York, Blast Fighter, Rabid Dogs. He was in the 1987 Barbarian Twins movie, The Barbarians, that I haven't seen yet, but I, but I know you purchased for us, Joe. Oh, that's right. I forgot I had that. Well, that came on like a double feature disc that I got with some other B movie. Uh, I've forgotten now. I'll have to go check in a bit. Uh, but yeah, you know I love my leather diaper barbarian movies, and this this <laughs> appears to be a two diaper affair. <laughs> um, so one thing that I love is that is that uh, Joe Eastman is in all of this just righteous garbage, uh, and yet a number of Sunday school classes may have glimpsed uh, Eastman when they watched Richard Gere uh, as King David in 1985's movie King David. This is the one that that had Gear and then. Uh, uh, also had Edward Woodward in it as King Saul. Um, but in it, of course, it's a King David movie, so you're going to encounter at least some flashbacks of David and Goliath. Who's mm-hmm. Goliath? It's George Eastman. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Now, um, Eastman worked a lot with uh, Joe D'Amato. They created some, again, some just really trashy films with each other. Uh, but not only as an actor for Eastman, but also as a writer. Uh, it turns out he did attend the Italian National Film School. And I guess he was, I, I haven't seen any of, I think, any of these later works, but he worked mostly as a screenwriter for Italian television from the early 1990s onward. Huh. And he directed a couple of films as well, or, well, I think he stepped in and, like, did some scenes on a couple of films, but there's only one that he wrote and directed, and that's a 1990 mad science horror film titled Metamorphosis, which I, I haven't seen it in its entirety. I think that's one I started watching late at night once and had to go to sleep instead. And you have not resumed the journey since. No, but now I want to. Now I'm like, I want to see uh, see what, what he brought to the table on that. But yeah, George Eastman, uh, always a treat when he pops up. But also, I guess when Eastman pops up, you also have to question, should I be watching this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Other actors. Uh, Donald O'Brien is in it playing Professor Ulster, a short role. He was born in 1930. He's a French actor. Interestingly enough, he played uh, the character Petro, who I don't really remember from the 1986 film adaptation of The Name of the Rose. Uh, but B-Horror fans probably know him better as the uh, titular Dr. Butcher M.D. from 1980 Zombie Holocaust, which was also promoted as Dr. Butcher M.D. I am not familiar Oh, I'm, I don't think I've actually seen it, but I'm um, I'm familiar with it by reputation. Uh, so uh, it's it's sort of on the list, I guess, uh, just because I like the idea of there being a Dr. Butcher MD. But then again, Butcher's not that uncommon of a last name. So there have to be some Dr. Butcher MDs out there. So uh, we know that George Eastman plays the bad trucker in the movie, but there's also a trucker who turns out to be a good trucker. And that is the arm wrestling champion Blanco. Yeah, Blanco seems to be the regional arm wrestling champ, uh, played by a guy named uh, Darwin Swalve, who lived 1946 through 1999, American Broadway actor who played a heavy in a number of notable films because he's just kind of like this big bulldog of a guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in Police Academy 6, Heartbreak Ridge, Summer School, Cry Wilderness, which is a terrible Bigfoot movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but he played a wrestler in Barton Fink. Oh, did he play Wallace Beery in that? Uh, he's just credited as being wrestler. Oh, okay. So he might be the other wrestler in Barton Fink. Uh, I don't specifically remember him. Now, one of the big connections with this film is with the music, because this movie has a score by Claudio Simonetti. Mm, yeah. Talk talk about legends. Uh, uh, one of the the biggest names on this picture for sure. Uh, notable for his his solo work, but also his work as part of Goblin. Um, the, his electronic and prog rock scores uh, helped many an Italian genre film to come to life. Oftentimes, more so, at least uh, I don't know, and I think many people's opinion come to life more than they would have with with any other music. Um, and also the the work of Simonetti and, and Goblin it ultimately influenced and inspired an entire generation of electronic artists. Seeing Goblin in concert is uh, is a real treat, and I've seen Goblin in concert twice. These were really good shows. Uh, they tended to be sort of split half and half between stuff based on movie themes, so they'd do like a, I don't know, what felt like a kind of weird improvisation based on the score to Tenebrae or, or one of the other Dario Argento movies that they did the score to. Those are some of their best scores. But then also there would just be like Italian prog rock with shredding synth saxophone. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a it, it's a it's a definite sound. Again, it's 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 been very influential. I would say probably some of the, the best scores and the best known scores that he worked on were 
uh, Suspiria, Deep Red, um, Tenebrae. Uh, I, I'm also extremely partial to his work on Warriors of the Wasteland, which I mentioned earlier from, from 1983. Um, but it's, um, and I guess another thing I love about uh, Claudio Simonetti and Goblin is that this is the music that has kind of become Halloween music, I feel like, in- increasingly. Mm. I don't know, at least in the circles I move through. Like, if you see a Halloween playlist, you're going to get some of uh, Simonetti's sound. And uh, I think that—I I love Monster Mash, but I far prefer a great synth score. Yeah, me too. Oh, so one thing that I would like to point out about the music in this movie is that I feel like the score of Hands of Steel— is very funny, but not because it's bad. Uh, like it's 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 a good type of whatever this type of score is. It, I mean, in some ways, it's uh, it's sort of a Terminator score ripoff, but it's also got the great original Claudio uh, Simonetti magic. And what's funny about it is the way that it sometimes kicks in with a sudden transition or cut in what's <laughs> happening on screen. So there's one example that you, you might recall. Uh, there's a scene where I think there's no music in the background at all. And it's just uh, it's just our, our protagonist, our Borg man, sort of haggling with a junk car dealer about uh, whether or not to get a car. And it's a slow moving scene. They're just talking about like, oh, yeah, I'll give you that car for uh, I'll give you give it to you for 200 extra bucks. And he's like, deal. Okay. No music in the background. <laughs> very calm. And then just slam cuts to him driving on the highway. And it's like, yeah, I love it. Well, let's, let's go ahead and see if we can get Seth to give us the legal limit on the, on one of the tracks from this soundtrack. This is the, the, the track titled atomic arm. All right. I have to say, if you if you love that, and I I, I loved it, then you can stream or buy uh, Simonetti's soundtrack for Hands of Steel on Bandcamp. Uh, it's on there, published under Italy's Rust Blade Records, uh, and you can even get it uh, get a physical version on silver vinyl. And this I was checking, this was just released last month. So um, that what luck! You'd think they sponsored this, but they did not, because we did not get silver records in payment. How did you find this movie, by the way? I just wanted something Italian, uh, you know, and I started looking around and I wanted something that what that wasn't like too um, not as uh, awful as some of the Italian awful. horror yeah. movies are. <laughs> yeah, or I you know I didn't want I didn't want something too boring either and so this seemed to be like dead center. This seemed to be like the the good uh, punching zone. This is a good find. All right, so I guess it's time to start breaking into the plot of this baby. I don't know if you had the same association I did with the the very beginning, the very beginning of the opening credit montage, uh, because what I immediately felt I was watching at the very, very beginning before the music changed was an industrial dystopian take on the opening credits of Twin Peaks, though once again, this predated Twin Peaks. Huh. No, I I didn't get the the Twin Peaks note uh, so much, but... um... Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it starts setting the the stage for some sort of dis- near future dystopia, some Hell City in the background. But we don't really go into Hell City 
so much because most of this seems to take place uh, either on the outskirts of, uh, of Hell City or more specifically out in Arizona. Yeah, it's only Hell City for a few minutes at the beginning. But no, I, I'm going to hammer Like if you watch it again at the very beginning, there's this dreamy, almost Angelo Badalamenti type music sort mm-hmm. of a, sort of floating along over shots of drab urban alleyways flooded with fog and oil refineries just belching smoke and flames into the atmosphere people just generally having a hard time it's showing you like a lot of uh, people appearing to suffer and then suddenly the soundtrack just shifts into high gear from out of nowhere the drums bass and saxophone come along and it's clear that nope this is going to be a non-stop thrill ride this is not uh, a dreamy walk through twin peaks <laughs> One of the funny things we see during the opening credits montage is, is showing you these scenes from like, you know, blasted industrial landscape and and uh, and a dystopian city. But it also keeps showing these posters and banners with a slogan that says, you have no future. And what appears to be a the guy who says that, like a guy pointing a finger, a guy with a white beard. I think we're going to find out who this guy is in a minute. And it's this dude named Reverend Mosley. But I was just thinking, like, it, so how did this guy get so popular with the message, like bringing his you have no future message to the nation tonight? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. if the, I don't know if something's lost in translation there or um – if it's more of a situation where there's more to it, like you have no future under the current uh, administration. I think that's <laughs> what it's supposed to be. I think he's saying yeah. like things are bad. You need to take control of your life. But I just don't think you have no future is a good way to message that. No, I mean, I don't I wouldn't want to wear that on a on a button. Right. But I guess so we, we pretty soon meet this guy, the old guy with the white beard. He is this guy named Arthur Mosley, uh, Reverend Arthur Mosley, who seems to be talking about his message seems to be an ecological one. Like he's talking about mm-hmm. pollution and how industry has destroyed this world and air pollution is killing people. And we see him in a headquarters that's set up in like a seedy hotel where he's got assistants who are helping him out and talking with the police about how he needs protection. And then there's a great piece of futuristic technology in here where you see Mosley speaking into a word processor that takes voice dictation. (laughs) So we got that on one hand, Mosley and all his friends and the police who seem to be like, whoa, you know, the people want you dead. We got to, we got to help protect you. And then on the other hand, we meet Turbo Lug. This is the protagonist of the film. He, when we first meet him, he's driving a red muscle car and he's just this, this gentleman of beef who gets his own high octane soundtrack. Uh, yet again, one of those transitions, like when it cuts to him immediately new music, really driving forward, heavy beat. Yeah, I mean, you got to get that electronic in there. You got to have your music be at least 70% electronic because he's 70% electronics. Oh, that's a good point. So we see him come into the same hotel where Mosley and his people are hanging out. And as he's moving around in the hotel, I got to say, Claudio, we know you do great work, but some of the music in this sequence in particular is as close as you can get to the Terminator soundtrack without a lawsuit. It was really (laughs) on the nose. But anyway, we we see Daniel Green, the gentleman of beef, uh, coming back to his apartment. 
and it's it seems to be on the floor below where the anti-pollution guy is and so he's wandering mm-hmm. around his apartment we also see another piece of great future technology which is the uh the the cyborg's watch which is just like a digital watch but it's yeah. <laughs> i guess it's got a calculator on it maybe this was uh, an early time for that i get i mean at the time this was probably a super advanced watch yeah uh, but it's got like a an LCD display. Ooh, I mean, it's it's really special. But uh, so we see him in his apartment, and he's got mustard in his apartment. I want to know this. This is a store mustard at room temperature guy because it's just sitting on the kitchen table, not in the fridge. And we watch him take a shirtless nap, and we <laughs> we watch the sunlight glinting off of his well oiled body. And I was like shining in beams off of his pecs and the side of his face. And then he starts getting visions of faces and voices, right? There's this David Strathern-looking guy who suddenly pops up in in the cyborg's head and tells him to proceed with mission as directed and don't let there be any mistakes. And this part I, I found very funny because we see the beefy guy begin to obey the messages. Like he leaves his apartment and he's got these cold, dead eyes as he's walking up the stairs. But then you also kind of hear the the David Strathern looking guy, his voice in the background still talking, but it's quieter, uh, saying like, neutralize. Did, uh, did I say neutralize? Neutralize. <laughs> That's part of the problem. You need to be really firm with yeah. these uh, instructions. But so he goes up and he does an attack on Mosley's headquarters, right? He kicks in the door and he's clearly there on a on a on a deadly mission. Yeah, and he he takes out like a security guy or an assistant, an aide with one of the most ridiculous um, martial arts maneuvers I have ever seen. Uh, it is such a weird attra- a weird attack that I have to. I, if you haven't seen it, I have to explain it to you. So, if you were to cross your arms on your chest like you've been mummified, and then you're to lash outward so that your arms close like a pair of scissors, presumably around the victim's head, but do so so that you are you are smacking them with the backs of both hands. It's a double backhand. Yeah, but it's it's so weird because this can't possibly work. Like, I'm not a martial artist. Again, I should stress. Um, but this doesn't seem like it would be effective even if you had cyborg arms of steel. It's just, I, I just can't imagine how this would help generate any kind of force or even that much surprise. Why do you need surprise? You're a cyborg with arms of steel. Oh, who made you the expert on cyborg martial arts? <laughs> what I would just like to point out is that he kills this dude with the arm-crossing dance dance move that Elizabeth Berkeley does in Showgirls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is it is like that. Um I mean there are some like pro wrestling and even martial arts moves uh, that have like a double arm attack. Like I guess the most one of the most famous ones would be the the double ear clap, a double ear slap rather. Okay, where you like you know you slap the ears with both arm with both hands at the same time. Sure. Uh, and there's like a work version of that as well. There's also the dreaded Mongolian chop, which is like doing two twin karate chops to like the the side of the neck or the shoulders at the same time. And those make sense. They're you know, they have impact to them. And you can also say, well, they're, you know, they're, especially with the Mongolian chop, it's a, a little theatrical and maybe surprising to an opponent. But I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen the Paco special before. And I don't know if I'll ever see it again, but it's, it's beautiful in its absurdity. Do we know who did the martial arts choreography in this movie? 
I don't know. We should I mean, look that the, up. We should. We should. Uh, maybe I'll look that up after the fact, and if it's interesting, I'll report back. But it's not like the the, the fight choreography is bad in this. There's some fun stuff, especially later in the picture, uh, which we'll get to in a bit. It's just that this was creative to a degree that uh, is just unbelievable. Like, I applaud it, though, you know, because he could have just punched them and we wouldn't be talking about it. He did this ridiculous thing and it made the film more joyful. Now, of course, so he does that move to the assistant and then he moves on into the next room and his target is in the next room. His target is the the old guy with the beard, uh, uh, Arthur Mosley. And uh, I believe Arthur Mosley is supposed to be blind, right? So he, like, mm-hmm. doesn't recognize what he looks like but he just senses his presence and he says you've come here to kill me haven't you but i'll but you'll never kill the work i have begun well go ahead and do it and so daniel green starts hearing uh the voice in his head again saying neutralize neutralize and then i swear what it looks like happens next is that he kicks him in the groin to death. Yeah, and the old man's like, oh! Yeah. And, and that's it. But yeah, you don't see him make any contact with him. You have like a... Uh, like a point of view from the old man of him attacking. So it, yeah, when I watched it, I'm like, I guess, I guess he kicked him in the groin, which was, is a weird choice, especially, I mean, maybe, maybe it's in line with someone who does that weird hand choppy thing from the the previous scene. I don't know. Now the movie makes clear later on that this is not what happens. It's supposed to be that he just punched him really fast in a way that's like not humanly possible, but that that's not what it looks like at all. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's weird to watch for sure. But so Cyberlug escapes out the window, he escapes into the sewer, and then it's not really a sewer, it's just like a hallway under the street with a gauntlet of eternally sparking high-voltage cables on each side. <laughs> and they, at some point, I think the police look down there and they're like, no, no human being could get through here. Uh, that's a clue. Um, <laughs> and then we see him escape in a futuristic car, which is just some 80s car with extra stuff glued to the back of it. It's got some pipes and bars on the on the hatch. Yeah. I mean, if you can't afford the, the full free jack, this is the way to go. Yeah. Uh, and then there's one sequence I really loved, which is like he drives into a forest. It's this pine forest that has a sign in front of it that says, Warning, Acid Rain Ahead. Yeah, I, I love this. I love this part as well because, it you know, it brings back headlines from that time period about acid rain. And then the idea, it's some nice world building, you know, this is a place, this is a world that's ravaged by pollution that Mosley's trying to fight and our hero has to drive through a bunch of, of acid rain. Sadly, when he gets to the other side, we don't have like that cartoon moment where the car has been just melted away to nothingness. No, but, uh, but, but, you but it do, is smoking, right? You do see it coming through. At one point, he's driving through it and it's dripping through the ceiling of the yeah. uh, into the cabin and it's like burning the seat next to him, but he's fine, I guess. Wonder why it could be. It's almost as if he's not destructible by the normal means of harming a man. <laughs> Uh, but uh, so anyway, yeah, the acid rain. And I love also the idea that acid rain would be a constant localized hazard in this world. Right. So it's not like there are clouds that float around and could rain down acid in multiple places. It's just like, hey, here's one area where the road goes under acid rain and you can put a sign there. I like it's very folkloric, right? It's like the haunted woods or something. Yes. Humbaba's seven acid terrors. He takes them off yeah. one at a time and rains them down on the car. Uh, oh, and then we also we find out, uh, despite the fact that it looked like the old guy, uh, Mosley got killed by the, the kick, uh, in fact, he is still alive and they wheel him out on a stretcher and they take him to the hospital. 
Uh, and then we get to meet the bad guys. We go into the belly of the beast. We're in some kind of evil bunker where we see the indoctrination voice guy, you know, Mr. Neutralize. And he mm-hmm. is hanging out with round sunglasses guy who we mentioned earlier. And they're trying to figure out what went wrong with the assassination. Why was Mosley not killed like he was supposed to be? And so they start looking up digital files on the on the cyber lug. <laughs> and we find out Neutralize guy is called Cooper. And uh, and I love these screens they pull up. I attached a couple of shots I took of these screens, Rob. One is just a picture of Daniel Green's face, and it says, negative characteristics, colon, none. <laughs> uh, but we also learn things about him. We learn that his name is – his real name is Paco Querac, that he's from Page, Arizona – that uh, that his instructor was this guy Cooper, who is you know the Mister Neutralized, the guy talking in his head. That he was trained for thirteen months at Fort Bragg. He was tested on August twelfth, and then I think they couldn't fit the rest of the screens they'd already cycled through into this summary screen. So it was supposed to say like efficiency maximum, lethality maximum, negative characteristics none. But instead, they just shortened that to efficiency characteristics colon none. <laughs> this is this is not good design, folks. People will be able to pause the movie in the future. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, Page, Arizona, that is worth noting because it was filmed. Uh, a lot of it was filmed in Page, Arizona. So if we have any listeners out there who have been to Page, Arizona or live in Page, Arizona, are you listening to the show in Page, Arizona right now? Let us know. So eventually we meet John Saxon, and he, he's the big boss of the bad guys. He is Maximum Suit, and he's supposed to be some kind of vicious corporate overlord. They're not really specific. I think the issue is that he's an evil, uh, polluting corporate guy, and Mosley has been saying pollution is bad, and that can't be tolerated, so he has to kill him. Right. But his name is, uh, is Mr. Turner, Francis Turner. And uh, he says, okay, we've got to find Paco Quirac before the FBI does. And so he sends his guys off to, to do that. Now, now we cut back to Paco on his uh, on his journey through the desert, and one of the fun- so there's a number of things. He's cruising along the desert highway in the dark. Uh, we we've seen that he's been uh, through the acid rain area. The acid rain leaked through the the ceiling and was burning the inside of the car. But also, we see in his car. He has a TV embedded in the dashboard. It's sort of down near the gear shift, which is just <laughs> amazing future car design. Are they are they doing that now? Are they making cars that have a TV in the dashboard? Surely if they um, are, it's closer to the windshield at least. Yeah, I think it's at least higher up. Um I I don't have one, but you you see them you see cars around that have some sort of enormous screen there. I guess it has like it's maybe supposed to have a bunch of um like road data on there, but I'm uh, but it's I don't know. It looks like a TV to me. Sure, you can hack it to watch Hands of Steel on it while you're supposed to be driving. <laughs> I mean, driving's boring, you know. You gotta you gotta have something to pay attention to while you're doing it. <laughs> PSA: Keep your eyes on the road, folks. Do, yeah, do don't watch. Do not watch movies while driving. Please, please. do not. Uh, but then we get the the car trading scene I already mentioned earlier with the funny musical transition out of it. He trades cars, I think, because he's trying to throw the, the people tracking him off the trail. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so Paco, then he discards the second car that he got and he like drives it off a cliff and then just starts hoofing it through the desert. He's just walking through the badlands and eventually 
comes upon a highway motel that's going to be sort of uh, the, the home base for the rest of the movie. It's called The Champion's Oasis. Uh, as soon as he goes inside, he notices that it is a mess. There are beer bottles all over the place. There is rotten bacon on the counter with earwigs <laughs> crawling around on it, which was a good touch. And I noticed something else about this place. It's similar to the interiors in Terry Gilliam's dystopian movie Brazil in that there are just ducts everywhere, you know, snaking mm -hmm. from wall to ceiling in every direction for no apparent reason. Though I think in – in Brazil, like that, there's supposed to be some satirical value to that set choice. It like it, like in a way, it symbolizes that uh, this is a society that is extremely complicated, but nobody knows how anything works or why anything is happening the way it is. In this movie, it just seems to be like, ah, let's let's make this uh, roadside bar look a little more futuristic. Yeah, just throw in some ducts. You can get some ducts at your uh, your local hardware store, but and it'll look like the future. And the thing is, this is accurate because it it kind of uh, foretells the um, the office design choice that would become uh, fashionable in the decades to follow, where instead of having uh, you know the the white tiles covering up your ductwork, you have exposed ductwork. Ooh, yeah. So you can just uh, which I mean I like. I've been in a couple of offices now that have that design, and mm -hmm. it is kind of neat to stare up and wonder, huh? Okay, I see how all the the air conditioning connects. I see some weird um, you know uh, keys and knobs and whatnot and the uh, that are i guess supposed to be accessed by professionals uh so in a way uh, yeah this this design is accurate champions oasis has original brickwork yeah no it actually doesn't it. though it's all like wood paneling what, what do you call that like really thin wood paneling that goes over the walls oh um yeah yeah it does look like wood paneling it looks it lo it does look just authentically um Gross. Yeah. Like they found an actual gross bar and they just threw up some ducts and uh, and started shooting. Oh, another thing. I took a screen capture of this because I noticed on the inside of the door leading into the Champions Oasis is Garfield. It's just a poster of Garfield. <laughs> it says, have a nice day. So Garfield exists in this film's reality canon. I like that. Also, really funny detail was the full exchange that is the very first meeting of the two main characters of this movie. Uh, Janet Agron walks out as as Paco comes into the place and she says, can I help you? He says, I'm looking for a place to stay. She says, come in. You ever arm wrestle? He says, no. <laughs> Well, because we find out that is what this community lives for. Uh -huh. They are all about the arm wrestling. It's the the only institution, aside from drinking, uh, that that is holding everyone together. That's right. This humble desert motel is a sort of uh, an innocent oasis of arm wrestling in this otherwise messed up world. Now, of course, they start arguing over whether he can stay there at the hotel because uh, does he have money? No, he doesn't. Uh, I think he says he can do work, but she says something cynical about that. And then we cut to uh, some stuff the bad guys are doing. So the bad guys go and they end up intimidating this scientist who I think helped create cyborgs. And they're and they're threatening his work. He's like, do whatever you want to me. You can't you know, you won't get information out of me about how to catch this cyborg because you're trying to use cyborgs for evil. And they're like, well, what if I do this? And they just start smashing his stuff in his lab. And he's like, no, my precious work. So <laughs> he gives them a clue. He reveals that maybe. 
the reason that Paco did not complete his mission is that he malfunctioned because of memories of his past, his childhood in Arizona. And they're like, oh, great, that's what we need. And then they shoot him. And then it's a double-double cross, and Sunglasses guy shoots Cooper, the, the main guy who did the indoctrination. Yeah, which which in a way works as a nice little twist in the film. It kind of drives home that ultimately Turner is so evil that he's just that everybody's disposable. Right. You know, even the guy that seems to be his uh, second in command uh, here, or at least his main guy on the case, uh, and he'll do him in as well. But I, out of film, I suspect that these scenes were shot later in the production after Claudio Casanelli had died. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so again, this is that, that situation where Claudio Casanelli, I'm guessing, was supposed to be central here and more tied into the ending of the film. Uh, but since he, he died in that tragic crash, uh, they had to write and film around that. I think that makes sense. Now, we, we go back to Paco and Linda, the, the uh, manager of the Oasis, and they're, they're, I guess they've already resolved whatever their original conflict was because he's like, it's okay. He's staying there now. And he's mm-hmm. like, why did you let me stay? And she gives some backstory. She goes, who knows? Maybe the memory of the girl who showed up afraid and broke 13 years ago, lost and nowhere to stay. Or maybe it's because there's a whole lot of wood out there that needs chopping. Uh, so, and I guess this, the implication is, look, this guy's got big muscly arms. He can be put to good use chopping wood. And he brings up the question, uh, do people still use wood? I didn't know people still used wood. And she says, yes, especially since the, the, uh, the ecological movement led by Reverend Mosley. And I'm very confused here. So it seems that the anti-pollution guy is causing people to burn more wood. Yeah, it does. It does seem weird. I guess they were burning worse things than wood. Um, Stop heating yeah. your house by burning tires. Yeah. But then also there's the question. It's like, what wood are you about to send him out to chop in the middle of Arizona? In no Page, trees. Arizona? No yeah. trees anywhere around. And then when we see it, the wood pile, by the way, it just looks like a giant pile of garbage. There is, there's tires and stuff in it. It doesn't seem to be primarily made of wood. Uh, though when he's done with the job, we do see it. It, it is mostly wood, but uh, but of course, here's another chance for Paco to take his shirt off and get to work. And yep. later we see that he finishes the a whole week's work in a single day. So it's like Hercules in the stables, you know? Ah, it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Janet is astonished. She's like, wow, what a man. <laughs> uh, and then we also get uh, John Saxon meeting with, uh, with Sunglasses Guy, and, and they talk about this Euro hitman that they're going to hire, who uh, John Saxon says is infallible. They tell me, I, I think his name is supposed to be Peter Howell, but it always sounded like Peter Hollow. And this is Claudio Casanelli. Yes, this is this is him. Uh, then there are some scenes. There's a whole B plot about uh, these agents at the FBI and scientists trying to figure out what was the weapon that was used to attack Mosley. So they're like asking him about what it was. He's like, it was small but very hard, and they're and they don't know what that could be. And they've got like a computer simulation that I think scanned his wound so they can determine what type of object made it. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. That he hit him with something small, but very hard. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course we were going to find out increasingly that what happened was is, yeah, that he had these flashes of his, his past and that he pulled the killing blow. He didn't like put his full might into it. So I'm like, did he punch him with like just a thumb or something? Oh like, yeah. What, maybe. What accounts for this? 
Well, anyway, you knew we were going to get to some arm wrestling eventually. So yep. the first of a couple of arm wrestling sequences is coming up. Uh, this happens because some some rough truck boys come into the desert oasis, uh, the champions oasis, and they start being aggressive and threatening with Linda and Paco. And of course, this leads to a confrontation because Paco is already protective of of uh, of Linda and her place. And this this leads to an arm wrestling challenge. The leader of these bad truck guys is Raul, who is played by George Eastman. And Raul is just constantly talking trash. Yeah, he's just he's just snarling and leering like he's he's taller than everybody. And so he's he's kind of just looming over everyone and just just he's just like a wolf. Yeah, he's he's wonderful thoroughly menacing presence like if <laughs> if he were actually in a restaurant i was in i would leave <laughs> yeah he has some pretty fun lines too there's one part where he says anyone know this piece of rat dirt <laughs> <laughs> uh so it leads to an arm wrestling challenge that he like insults paco and then paco's like uh, i'll show you what cyborgs are made of uh, and so, uh, they all start making bets on who's going to win the arm wrestling. They say, Raul's going to wipe the floor with this bum. But Linda bets a thousand dollars on Paco to win. And of course, uh, Paco does win, right? Because he's got, he's, I, I don't know. It seems kind of not fair actually that he's like a machine and George Eastman is just a human, but I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe since George Eastman's like provoked him into it, it it's not cheating. Uh, Eastman's character does just about everything imaginable to make you not root for him. So right. yeah, it's it's easy to forgive the um, uh, the cyborg cheat here. Yeah, but then uh, of course a big fight breaks out after Paco wins. Everybody starts fighting, and Paco has to has to beat up all the bad truckers. And then I realized that okay, this is actually Terminator meets Roadhouse. Did you think about mm-hmm. that? Yeah, without the the high minded. Um, <laughs> a bouncer philosophy that uh, that makes Roadhouse so great, but yeah, it is very. This setting is very Roadhouse, and you get a Roadhouse style um, uh, slobber knocker. Oh, but I don't know. At the end of the movie, there's some philosophizing that's very much on the level of Pain Don't Hurt. Yeah, yeah, true. Now, by this point, Linda is obviously falling in love with Muscleborg. He's he's just walking around with his shirt off all the time, and she's like, "Wow, you must work out a lot." <laughs> he goes, "Yeah, a little." Um, and they're they're setting things up for another big arm wrestling showdown because this time he's got to go up against the real champ Blanco, who is like mm-hmm. undefeated arm wrestling uh, dude, and uh, and it's going to be in a rattlesnake match, which I don't maybe we can explain the situation there in a minute but raul of course tries to cheat here by luring uh paco out into the desert to do a good deed they say like oh some children are trapped in a crashed car and then uh, paco goes down to try to rescue them but it's a trap by raul and his buddy and they drag him on a tow truck and beat him up and leave him for dead in the desert but he, of course, is a muscle cyborg, and so he survives and escapes and makes it back in time for the big match. Yeah, despite having been beaten with with metal pipes yeah. and left for dead in the desert, he shows up. Like, Raul is already already boasting. He's like, oh, I guess, I guess you're, you're a beefy man. He's too, uh, he's too chicken to show. And then he shows. And, and we get this fabulous arm wrestling scene between um, – Paco and uh, Blanco, and it's it's just so 
it is over the top. Uh, it's more over the top than I imagine anything in the movie over the top because, again, rattlesnakes are involved. It's a rattlesnake match. And they have this, this, this mechanism. They have like these little enclosures for rattlesnakes, like uh, see-through plastic uh, or plexiglass or something on either side. And then there's like a cuff, a locking cuff. So if you force your opponent's hand all the way down, uh, it, their, hand, their wrist will be locked in this cuff and that will also open the cage for the rattlesnake, and the rattlesnake will come out and bite you, uh, or I mean, it will bite your opponent. Uh, so it's not just as simple as like there's a there's a basket of rattlesnakes on either side. No, there's like this whole elaborate mechanism. They put a lot of thought into making the best possible high stakes rattlesnake um, arm wrestling competition. Which of the five writers dreamed this up? I think all of them. I think, <laughs> I think that's why it's so elaborate. That someone's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You can't just have a basket of rattlesnakes because we're going to want real rattlesnakes. You're going to we're going to need a, an enclosure. Oh, no, no, no. How are you going to trigger the rattlesnakes to come out? Well, how's the arm going to be held there? So all these ideas came together and they kept they kept all of them. This is the convoluted product of rattlesnake arm wrestling groupthink. Yes. But it's a terrific scene. I mean, I love it a good is. arm wrestling sequence. And you see them in like, uh, like in a lot of a lot of films. Like there's one in The Fly. Um, oh yeah, Ooh, it's just a primal test yeah. of strength. Now afterwards, I guess even though Paco wins, he's sort of I think injured in what's going on, or I don't know if he's injured by what uh, what George Eastman did to him earlier, or in the in the arm wrestling. But then we get a scene just straight out of Terminator. It's just like a copied shot where his arm is open and he's working on the machinery underneath the skin, which you yep. see metal stuff. Clear guess, Terminator moment. Yeah. And this is just the first scene in the movie, I think, where it's like fully confirmed, like, oh, this, yeah, he's definitely a real cyborg. I mean, I guess characters have been talking about it, but now you see the machine underneath him. Oh, another important note about the the big rattlesnake arm wrestling event is that he, he wins. He gets Blanco's uh, wrist into the cuff. The snake yeah. comes out to bite Blanco, but then at the last second, um, our cyborg hero comes in with a karate chop and cuts the head off of the rattlesnake. Saves yes. Blanco. Saves him. That'll become important later on. Well, but here I guess we're into the full uh, the exposition, backstory, cyborg reveal part of the movie. Uh, so simultaneously, we're cutting back and forth between the police figuring out what's going on. They're one of them, who is I believe a uh, like a police forensic scientist named Doctor Peckinpah. Um, come, come on, folks. Um, <laughs> that named Doctor Peckinpah, who's like, uh, I think we know what could have caused the wounds to Reverend Mosley, a cyborg fist, and they show it on the computer screen where it's a fist. But they're like, but no fist is capable of providing that amount of strength. <laughs> and then also, Paco just directly reveals his backstory to Linda. They have uh, they have a tender romance. Where where he's like, you know, he's like, I was once a, a something. I don't he was a soldier or something like that. And then and then I remember I was uh, in a crash and then I awoke in uh, Reverend Mosley's room and I was supposed to kill him. But something stopped me. And uh, and I realized I couldn't be just a Borg. I had to be something more. And he escapes. And, and the, of course, they talk about love. He's like, how can you love me knowing that I am more Borg than man? And. And she's like, I care for you, Paco, and they kiss, and it's just beautiful. <laughs> it's like, like, how can you love me knowing that I am only 30% man? And she's like, I would love you if you were 20, only 28% man. 
I guess I got it wrong if I said he he's not more Borg than man because the org is the he's how can you love me knowing I'm more Cybe than org. <laughs> but anyway, uh, she is going to she loves him and she's going to help him escape to the Mexican border later tonight because they know he's being hunted by both the FBI and I guess do they know he's also being hunted by John Saxon's people? I think so. Yeah, I well I mean he's been he's been dodging people the whole time. He has to know that his handlers are coming after him. Right. Uh so John Saxon's henchmen track him down with the help of of treacherous George Eastman who has who has given away his location. And so they got guns and helicopters and surveillance all around the Champions Oasis. Uh, and then we, we get a great scene where there are like some decoys who show up at the hotel who presumably are just trying to get a motel room. But uh, instead, it turns out they are they are part of this nefarious plot. And just a note on the future fashion here. Most of the fashion in this movie is not anything different than like what you I mean, like they don't have like weird, you know, back to the future two style futuristic clothing. It's just people wearing like flannel and jeans and stuff. Yeah. It's the, the hard times version of the future. For some reason, this one couple who shows up on a motorcycle, they are like Back to the Future 2 style stuff. Like, so one is wearing football pads as a vest yeah. and the other is wearing see-through plastic shorts, like just wearing like uh, two Ziploc bags for pants. And the great thing about the uh, the female here that's wearing the Ziploc bags for pants is it's quickly revealed it's a trap, and she is a killer cyborg as well. It is cyborg versus cyborg, and this is this fight scene is pretty great. Yeah, it's it's got a it's not that long, but it's it's in a it's in a tight spot. It's in this hotel room. Uh, we quickly see that she like she's shot, but then she's up again. She's got cyborg damage. She's got killer cyborg nails. There's a there's a fun bit of fight choreography, and it ends with him. Uh, he ends up putting the rival cyborg in a full Nelson and then going from a full Nelson to a full head rip, just twist the head off. And we get that wonderful moment that you see in so many of these uh, these films, films of this caliber, where the head falls onto the floor. And then you have that effect where someone has like a false um, floor around their neck. So you uh-huh. get that, uh, that that shot of the decapitated head talking. It's Ian Holm in Alien. Yeah. Uh, yeah, except, she, except the head is going, they will destroy you. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the voice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also, I love how when she first announces, uh, is, she first starts trying to kill him. So she's got like these killer metal nails that mm-hmm. she's stabbing him with. And she says, I am the perfect cyborg and I have been sent here to kill a traitor. Which it sounds like she's taking it too personal. I thought cyborgs were just supposed to do their mission, but she does not sound like she is dispassionately executing programming. She's she's taking it personal. She she's like really mad at this guy. Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that it's it's early days with cyborgs as as they reveal more later in the picture, uh, and and he's the best. He is the even though he's flawed, even though his humanity is leeching back in, like he's the best. So even though he's very cold at the beginning, I guess this other cyborg is who's still like the second best cyborg, the best thing you could possibly send in to try and kill him. Um, you know, she's not perfect. She's clearly got too much uh, human emotion wrapped up in this whole uh, killing the opposition thing. Right. His profile says negative characteristics, none. Her says negative characteristics, taking it too personal. Exactly. Uh, but from here, it basically just it goes on into a very long action chase sequence that's got John Saxon's dudes do, 
chasing and shooting after Linda and, and Buddy Borg. They are being pursued mercilessly by, by the Saxonites. And, uh, oh, and there's a great part where while they're running around from uh, trying to escape them, Blanco shows up, the, the other, you know, the arm mm-hmm. wrestling champ. And he shows up. He's a really stand-up guy. He, he just, like, drives a truck in to help them get away. Yeah, he ends up giving his life to save our our hero uh, in this film. So that's that's pretty good. Yeah. In meantime, meanwhile, you've got um, sunglasses guy, and then ultimately, I think Saxon gets in on this too, using shotguns to fire rockets. Like they take a rocket uh, grenade, rocket rocket propel grenade or something, mm-hmm. and like stick it in the front of the shotgun, and then launch, use the shotgun to fire it. Yeah. Uh, which, which ultimately it looks it looks good. I'm just the part of me was wondering like what it, that just looks like you stuck like a Nerf in the shotgun. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, it does it looks good. I still bought it completely in film. Now, when Blanco gets blown up, you think that Linda has also been killed, but then it turns out that she survived. And so uh, uh, Musselborg is very upset because he he had discovered what love was, but now the one person he loved is is dead. And so he goes into a rage, and these soldiers are coming after him. They come after him. He like goes into this old factory. It's like some underground stuff, and they come after him with a laser. And he kills mm-hmm. all of the soldiers who were coming after him. And then John Saxon comes in after him personally, which, yeah, that really seems like something that this corporate jerk would do. I'm going to physically personally go in there to shoot at the the guy I'm trying to get. Um, but he picks up the laser and is trying to shoot Paco. But Paco, uh, of course, bests him. And then he grabs John Saxon and he's like holding him by the neck. And he says, you thought you could own me by controlling my brain. But what people like you don't realize is that you don't own a man until you control his heart. And then he literally pulls out John Saxon's heart. Yeah, it's it's a it's a quality kill. Um, yeah, there, there it seems like there are some other ones too. He's doing a lot of head crushing there were, mm-hmm. uh, against the minions uh, before he finally gets to John Saxon. But yeah, then he finishes John Saxon off with a heart rip. Oh, and then we get the the reveal. Linda is alive, uh, and it's a very love conquers all type ending. Uh, she's like he he's in the factory running around with a gun outside, shooting at the police like just in a rage. You know, he he's in a violent downward spiral because he thinks Linda has been killed. But then she reveals that she's alive, and she comes in to talk him down. And uh, he's like, they won't let me live. And she's like, yes, they will. She says, quote, they know that you were normal before you ended up in that laboratory. (laughs) Um, And she says, and you saved the best part of you, the soul. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The soul uh, managed to to bleed its way back into the whole cyborg equation and Mm -hmm. uh, turned the, 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 the evil scheme on its head. But then I would say, so it is mostly a love conquers all ending, except in the very last few seconds, there's, it suddenly gets kind of ambiguous and I don't know what to make of it. So uh, Paco peels back part of his head and reveals something underneath there. I couldn't tell quite what it was. Some, it's like some piece of metal in his head is glinting mm-hmm. and, and he's like, but is it a soul? And then she's like, <gasps> and then it just cuts to music. Uh, yeah, well, and, and also this some some text uh, on the screen that says, "It was a day in our near future. The era of the cyborg had begun." Um, the tense do, do, in, do, in this do. sentence is really confusing, but um, <laughs> and it also feels a little bit like Poochie died uh, on his, returning to his home planet, right? Yeah, uh, it just kind of comes out of nowhere, uh, but but I liked it nonetheless. So, like, did did they get to go off and like have a nice peaceful life together after this? 
Uh, sure. Why not? Oh, okay. I mean, maybe it was Utah. Uh, <laughs> Don't placate me. But no, I like to. I like to imagine that they uh, they settled in Arizona. They maybe maybe right there in Page, Arizona, and uh, you know lived happily ever after. Mosley brings around uh, you know brings about better environmental policies for the world. Um, but it is the age of the cyborg. So maybe I don't know. The cyborgs are an important part of bringing about uh, a more environmentally sound future. Maybe an all cyborg powered future. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe if you're only 30% organics, you end up caring more about those organics. You're like, look, I've already lost 70% of me to machine. I've only got 30% left, so I'm going to be 100% environmentalist. That's right. The cyb is not everything. Be, you know, your org is precious. Be yeah. good to your org. Oh, by the way, uh, that the bridge where we have the big showdown at, uh, that bridge is Navajo Bridge in Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, in the film, we see just a single bridge that was built in 1929. Since the filming of this movie, a second bridge was built right alongside it in 1995. The old bridge is still there, though. It's open for pedestrian and equestrian use. So uh, if you, uh, you find yourself in this uh, part of uh, Arizona, uh, check it out. You can apparently uh, walk out there on the, on the bridge where the big showdown takes place. I do love a good pedestrian bridge. Yeah. I mean, and it's a, it's a gorgeous bridge. That's one of the things I enjoyed a lot about this movie, but I did really enjoy getting to see the Arizona countryside, even if the, the film quality is not, you know, perfect, uh, especially since I had trouble finding this one and we ended up watching one of, there's several different rips of it on YouTube. So I ended up just picking the one that looked like it had the best film quality. Uh, it looks like it has been streaming on Amazon Prime in the past, but it was marked currently unavailable right now. So I, I had to make do with this. That title is Hands of Steel. I know at least a couple times in here we said something like Arms of Steel or Fists yeah, of I've, Steel. I wrote Arms of Steel at least once and had to go back and correct it, but probably said it anyway. Vendetta del Futuro. Vengeance now, of the uh, Future. <laughs> now, I know you had some thoughts about the cyborg acting in this. Oh, yeah. There was something that just popped up a few times in this movie. I can't remember what the specific instances were, but uh, – it's a, it's a thing you see every now and the now and again in some B movies, especially I feel like I've noticed it in some Italian B movies, is actors delivering their lines literally without acting, and I and this is different from bad acting. You know, bad acting is when a person attempts to inhabit a character and does a bad job. It's a, you know, it's a poor reading or it is implausible, not appropriate for the scene, something like that. Instead, this is a phenomenon where the line delivery is literally just a delivery. It's like reading a sequence of words out loud off a page. Mm, yeah. And I guess sometimes that's probably a product of dubbing. Oh, I, th I think absolutely it could be that. Uh, yeah. I don't remember what specifically I had in mind, but I noticed there were a few of those in here when I was watching it. But then again, if one character is a cyborg and therefore, you know, 70% machine, mm -hmm. then a certain kind of a cold read kind of makes sense. And then if another character is played by John Saxon, who often has that kind of stern delivery anyway, you know, mm -hmm. regardless if he's the villain in a cyborg film or if he's Nancy's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, you're mm -hmm. only going to get a certain level of energy from Saxon. Intense, but medium energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I see what you're saying. I mean, Saxon was always trying to play it cool. Which is dangerous for an actor. Like, you can have a cool persona as an actor, but if you try to be too cool, you limit yourself from, you know, the full range of emotion you could display on screen. Yeah. Meanwhile, George Eastman was not trying to play it cool, at no. least in this in the picture. In most pictures I've seen him in, he's, he's basically trying to be a cartoon wolf uh, out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. 
He's Jim Carrey's The Mask without animation. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close this one out. Um, Again, as of this recording, I I don't know of of a good place to go and stream this aside from finding, you know, rips of it. Uh, But uh, there have been some editions that have come out uh, on DVD before. So you might be able to rent it or or pick up a physical copy. But if you are interested in the soundtrack, again, go to rustblade.bandcamp.com because you can definitely listen to the whole thing there, buy yourself a digital copy or get that precious silver vinyl. And I looked and looked it. It appears that a number they have a number of different uh, uh, releases from that uh, from that uh, record label that's, that seem really interesting. I was listening to a few tracks here and there, but also multiple Goblin releases. And if you would like to listen to more Weird House Cinema, well. This publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Our usual science episodes are on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We usually have Artifact on Wednesdays, unless it is being um, uh, you know, uh, preempted by something. Uh, we have our listener mail on Mondays, but Friday is just a time for us to discuss weird pictures like this. So come on and cut loose at the picture show. Oh, and one more thing. I'll also include uh, some of this media that we discussed at the blog uh, at samutamusic.com. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 